0: Maybe and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal. Sometimes it's the abnormal. Sometimes it's the paranormal. Regardless, it's all beyond reality. And thank you for joining us tonight. I'm your host here on Beyond Reality Radio. I'm J.V. Johnson. Uh, Great show lined up. We're going to be talking about Sasquatch, Bigfoot, tonight with John Zeta. He's a journalist. He's got a new book out called In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond in Search of the Sasquatch. And uh, we'll be talking about that book and his time researching throughout the Great Bear Rainforest in Canada. One thing I do want to mention, because people have been asking, is where is Jason? Uh, of course, Jason is the co host of the program here and he hasn't been on in a while. Um, he uh, is filming a new television show. He has about a 16 week fil- filming. Schedule And he's just not able to join us on the program here during that. He's on the road constantly. His show is called Ghost Nation. He's filming it with two other alum from Ghost Hunters, including Steve Gonzalez and Dave Tango. And it is scheduled to debut on the Travel Channel in October. I don't have specific dates yet, but when I do, I will let you know, or maybe he'll let you know. Either way, we're looking forward to it. So we've got a good show for you tonight. I will look ahead to what's coming up later in the week so that you know what's happening here on the show. Tomorrow night, Rick Shapiro will be with us. This is a show that I've been anxious for. Uh, cancer consultant, researcher, edu- educator, and author of a book called Hope Never Dies. Rick relates stories of people who have beaten the odds and survived cancer. Now, I lost a father to cancer. I lost two two grandfathers and a, I guess I'll call them a step-grandfather, to cancer. I lost a grandmother to cancer. Uh, so, uh, like many people, cancer touches our lives, and I'm really anxious to hear some stories of hope and promise from Rick, in his, from his book, Hope Never Dies. And then Thursday night, returning guest Bernie Taylor will be here. Bernie is a naturalist and an author. He'll be answering the question, are we alone in the cosmos? He'll do that by examining nature's timekeeping systems. We love having Bernie on the program. He'll be back Thursday night. Friday, of course, is a best of. If I look ahead to next week, starts right off with a bang on Monday night with Stephen Schwartz. Stephen's a futurist and a scientist and an author. We'll be talking about remote viewing and its uses in archaeology, national security, and he'll also examine what the future will be like. A lot of people having that title or moniker, whatever you want to call it, futurist recently, that seems to be something that's cropping up in a lot of places. These are people that uh, take a look at what technologies are developing, what trends are developing, and apply them to what they think the future, our future, will look like. So that'll be an interesting conversation. Monday night, Stephen Schwartz will be joining us. Swing by Facebook and like our Facebook page for us, please. Beyond Reality Radio on Facebook and also mine, J.V. Johnson, or you can find it very easily by looking for J.V.J. Paranormal. Just do a search. It'll come right up. And then also go to YouTube, find the YouTube channel. Some people still don't have a radio station in their markets that's carrying the program, although we are growing significantly all the time. But there are a lot of markets, and some people just can't pick up the show on a radio station. So YouTube is a great option because we stream live there. There are a bunch of different streaming options. If you have our app, you can stream on the app. If you go to our webpage, you can stream on the webpage beyondrealityradio.com. Or you can go to the YouTube channel, which is just J.V. Johnson on YouTube, and you can stream it there. There's also about 300 back programs on the YouTube channel for you to enjoy as well, plus some special content lot of great stuff there so subscribe also click the bell icon so you get notifications when we upload or we go uh, live with a stream Uh, That's going to do it for our intro here. Let's take a break. We'll bring in our guest. We'll be talking with John Zeta about Sasquatch. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products, and all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. Welcome back to the show. By the way, jot down the phone number. We will take your phone calls in later part of the program if you want to join our conversation tonight. 607-282-4497 or toll free at 844-687-766. Tonight, our guest is John Zeta. He's a journalist and an author. His website is his name, johnzeta.com. And his book is called In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, In Search of the Sasquatch. John, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's an honor to have you
1: here. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's talk about you a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. Your work has appeared all over. Uh, Your your resume is quite extensive, quite broad. You've done work for a lot of different uh, vehicles, do you have a particular focus as a writer, a reporter?
1: I, you know, particularly like to write about travel and culture. Um, I've spent a lot of time abroad living in the Middle East. So the earlier part of my career was spent doing documentary work, um, <clears throat> focusing on Middle Eastern issues. So I lived in Cairo. I lived in Dubai. I lived in Beirut. So there was it was a little bit more, I guess, you know, political, audio, visual. And then more recently, I guess the the latter half of, of my working career has has shifted more into, for instance, photography, uh, partly as a result of my preference for, I guess, the, the simplicity of working on my own. And, you know, like film can be very complicated and, you know, pretty budget heavy and asking for money. And whereas, you know, I have my camera, I've got my laptop, I can just go travel and do my own work. So, um, yeah I, I'm really interested in cultures. I'm interested in remote places. I like to just you know get on a plane and go places and um yeah, just essentially go to spots that people tend to not travel to and write about those places just in maybe in a travel capacity, in a culture capacity, um, take pictures, landscapes. so yeah, definitely remote regions um, would be my I guess passion I, I suppose.
0: You um, obviously are going to we're going to be talking about your work uh, for your latest book in the valleys of the noble beyond. And we'll be talking about Bigfoot Sasquatch, if you will. Mm-hmm. I need to ask you, though, having lived in the Middle East as extensively as you have and traveled to the, some of these other places. What is the attitude in cultures that maybe are a little less familiar to many of us of things like Bigfoot creatures or even ghosts for that matter? Did you get a chance to explore that at all?
1: The subject came up, has come up a few times on my travels, and and um, I, I mean I w- I would say a place like the Middle East tends to be pretty insulated from those those types of subjects, at least like the cryptid sort of topics. I mean, right. the, um, but I mean, there are no strangers to superstition and ghosts, and in fact, you know, the Arab and the Islamic world have their own versions of supernatural beings, no, you know, they, known as the djinn, or, I mean, That's genies, right. are, I guess, are kind of the, the more anglicized, popular version of, of those creatures, and they, they tend to be these, uh, I guess, you know, essences um, that are either, you know, benevolent or malign and, and live in, you know, damp places like wells or toilets, and 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 they can take over people's, I guess, bodies, like they can be possessed and everything by them. So, um, so they, they do have those, they do have, I guess, in a general sense, um, beliefs in, in sort of other beings, but yeah, in terms of the the cryptids, not really so much. And, um, you know, Europe and Europe has got a bit of a wild man tradition, depending on where you go to. Um, and of course, you know, Central Asia, South Asia, Pakistan, the Himalaya, those sorts of mountain places—you're venturing into more yeti-type territory. Kashmir has got their own wild men, so yeah, I guess it depends where on the map you go, and it it, it will vary from place to place.
0: Now, I know you said you've kind of s- switched some of your emphasis to photography, and obviously, mm. um, authoring books. Uh, but as the media landscape has changed, you know, you've done magazines, you've done newspapers, you've done online work. Uh, any pre- preference and and what do you think of the what we would call almost a revolution in media at this point?
1: yeah well i mean you you could go as far as saying I think that it that journalism is is in a bit of a crisis or or maybe not in a bit of a crisis but in a, in a in a big crisis i mean papers print publications have been essentially undermined by the internet and by the the advertising that has gone to online. And I guess everyone can now publish their own blogs and everyone's got a voice. So, I mean, I think in in, in one sense, it's it's made <clears throat> the distinction between who is a journalist and who is not more tricky. Uh, it's It's allowed more people to have a say. But then when you have too many people having a say, you tend to have a lot of conflict and bickering and fighting and polarization, which is what you're essentially seeing now it's kind of almost like a Tower of Babel-type situation. So from the perspective of more traditional mainstream journalists, people who do the work as a career, um, it's undermined their, their pay, um, and it's harder to make a living, essentially. So I think, I think nowadays, people like me, you tend to have to have other, other work on the side. I mean, unless you're like one of the top, 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 People who's got like a full time job and everything, it, it's it's a little bit harder to make a living as a freelancer. I guess that's that's the point I'm trying to make.
0: As so. some yeah, as somebody who's been in media, I've been in broadcast media um, for a very very long time. You um, know, mm-hmm. I've watched this with great interest because I've always felt as though the print media, and I actually spent some time working for magazines, but print media mm. in the form of newspapers and magazines were the go-to for the more in-depth reporting, the more detailed reporting, and in some ways, the more genuine or honest reporting. Mm. Has this uh, change in media, and I know this isn't our topic tonight, I'm just fascinated by it, has this change, yeah. in, this change in media kind of uh, signaled the death of honest reporting in some, fa- some ways?
1: Well, I mean... I, I think maybe the issue might even be more. Just uh, it goes back to what you said a little bit earlier: the in-depth, uh, the in-depth aspect. I think, I think the internet has eroded most, if not all, people's attention spans, and as a result, um, you know, publications want their want their products to be shorter, and so it's harder to actually go deeper to 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 dig further and and to kind of provide something that is that covers a, a topic comprehensively enough essentially and and again it's it's partly the attention span thing and it's also a budget thing and everything so yes i mean i you know like i'll go i'll go pick up let's say a copy of my local paper in toronto like either the globe and mail or the toronto star and, and they're just shadows they're they're yeah. they're of, of what they used to be like you just even even just the size of the of the broadsheet is just it's like shrunk and yeah. so and and not a lot of not a lot of original reporting old stuff from the wires so it's it's yes it's completely changed
0: and it's a bit frightening for me uh from my perspective i don't know if you mm. agree that a lot of people are using sources like facebook for their news um because we <laughs> all know you can't despite what people say you can't right. believe everything you read online
1: yeah, yeah, no, no, for sure, and, and the, the sources are being blurred. And I mean, I'm I'm also you know I'm I'm a news writer. I work at CBC, and so um you know kind of freelance contract part time, and and you know we we use a lot of different sources, and I mean it's we'll, we'll get stuff off of Twitter, we'll get stuff off of Facebook. It's it's all it's all open season. It's like everything is a potential source, and that can cause problems, and so. Yes I mean I think I think we're definitely in a in a period in I guess modern media history which is unprecedented and and it's amorphous and ambiguous to to say the least
0: and it's exciting too right I mean there is something exciting about the ability for anybody to actually be heard
1: well and certainly if you're one of those people who wants to be heard, yeah I mean like um, but again it's 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 you know The price for that is a kind of chaos. Right. And a kind of like I said, it's sort of a I keep using the the term with, with my colleagues and friends, sort of a tower of babel, but um but yes, I mean there's 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 pros and cons to every new technology. With every with every new technological development in human history, there's it's always come with a cost, and I think that in this particular case, um it's especially so.
0: John, when'd you start as a reporter?
1: I began as an independent filmmaker, probably in the late '90s, and then from there on, started to do started doing freelance and did some radio at CBC and um, did some started doing papers, I guess in the in the and magazines in the early 2000s, and it's just been it's just been freelance pretty much ever since.
0: And at some point along the way, and we've only got a couple mm-hmm. minutes here before our break, but at yeah. some point along the way, this, uh, this topic of cryptids or specifically Sasquatch uh, kind of crossed your horizon and grabbed your attention.
1: Well, I grew up with it. So that's, I mean, that's kind of, that's the short answer. I, I um, grew up in the 70s and at a time when a lot of Bigfoot books, uh, well, not a lot, but let's say like John Green's, for instance, one of one of the first researchers in Canada, started, you know, putting out his books and films were coming out on the subject and TV, and um, it was a big thing in pop culture, and so it it was in, in, inculcated in me in, in at an early age. So um, it's not actually something that I picked up in adulthood. It's something that I that I brought with me into adulthood from childhood, essentially.
0: I remember, uh, and it often comes up on this show, but uh, a a television show called In Search of that Leonard Nimoy uh, uh, narrated, and that was my introduction to many, many of these topics uh, throughout the mid-70s. I remember watching those programs just uh, fixed on the television at the time.
1: Right, and yeah, that was one of them for me as well. And I think the the Sasquatch episode of that series may be one of (laughs) the most famous, of either that or the Loch Ness, but... Yeah. Definitely that one, the Six Million Dollar Man uh, series, and there were like there were just lots of made-for-TV stuff that would just come out, like Abominable Snowman, like like the whole culture was saturated with it, and and I was totally fascinated with it because I don't know, I guess, um, you know, I was I I was had a bit of a exotic kind of interest in exotic things and travel and wanderlust and probably something in my genes or whatever my upbringing and and um, and. That's somehow linked to mysterious places, and and that's where it all began, I guess.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, that you're right about that episode, the Sasquatch episode of In Search Of, and I remember <laughs> seeing the, um, I was going to say Zap Bruder film, but I know that's the wrong one, the Patterson film right. <laughs> on, right. on right. that episode, and then the Loch Ness Monster, and then also the Legend of Boggy Creek film came out around the same yeah, time, which exactly. also, also lit the fires a little bit. You mentioned, John, how you got interested Mm -hmm. in Sasquatch and this whole idea of cryptids and kind of the uh, what we would call, in some cases, some fringe topics. But at some point, there was a leap to write about it. What made you want to write about this?
1: I went on an assignment to the British Columbia coast here in Canada on the Pacific, uh, on the west coast, Pacific coast of Canada, a place called the Great Bear Rainforest, which is I would say just below the Alaska panhandle between there and the north tip of Vancouver Island, if one could imagine it or look at it on a map. Huge area the size of Ireland, um, wilderness region, um, intact, largest intact temperate rainforest in the world, mountainous glaciers at the high end, you know, lower lying bog forest on the outer coast, a few villages. And so I went there to, to write about it, essentially. And um i you know i knew going into the trip that the place has a long history of sasquatch reports because of course when i was reading the books when i was younger these these towns and villages were named in the books but i you know I wasn't really going there for that it was just more of a again a cultural travel assignment but when i got there i started hearing all of you know these reports and they were you know largely unsolicited almost entirely and you know one story led to the next, which led to the next, and it just so happened that the area there was experiencing a rash or you know a wave of reports that apparently they come and go every several years and it like completely rekindled my my interest and and just prior to going on the trip, well perhaps not just prior but uh, also in adulthood, there had been some other stories that I'd heard through other people so I mean, going from childhood to just before I decided to write the book, I was constantly, you know, reminded about this topic just by these serendipitous events and encounters. And it just it was kind of like the topic just kind of wouldn't leave me alone. And the trip to the Great Bear Rainforest was the straw that broke the camel's back in a sense. And And after that trip, after coming back, after having spent only two weeks there, I was like, wow, man, I would really, really love to go back and spend a whole bunch of months there and travel and just, like, put together something for a book. And then I just decided to do it because you only live once, and I was ready to write something that long. <laughs>
0: um, when Before you made that trip, um, and I know you watched some of the same programs I did, had some of the same interests as a kid. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily make you a believer, believer. Were you a believer when you went uh, and started to hear these stories?
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, I never really gave it before deciding to undertake a serious book project on it as a journalist. I I never really kind of gave too much thought to exactly how I felt about it in in, in really technical terms. So I would say I was generally a believer. I would I would say that I was I leaned heavily towards it, um, but then I think. When I decided to undertake the book, it was I almost had to kind of begin from the beginning again in a way, and sort of say, "Okay, like this is a journey." I had to define the journey. It's to, it's to it's to once and for all, you know, figure out if there is in my own mind if there is a creature or if these creatures exist or not. And so I I, I almost kind of hit the refresh button on the whole thing and, and decided, "Okay, I'm going to see if I can if I can go into this." somewhat, um you know objectively, and try and almost even entertain the notion that it doesn't and and so it, in a way, I kind of went back into it trying as if I was new to the subject in a way so that you know and that was the pretense, but of course um you know you can't really start from the beginning again, and so i you know as the journey went on i you know I just kind of. Decided to, to just go with the flow in terms of how I felt from moment to moment, but I would say I leaned heavily towards it. That's the short answer.
0: Um, as you were hearing l- stories from locals about um, sightings and and maybe legends, I, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what was the the focus of many of what you, what you was what you were being told. Um, but did you start to have a sense that that this was part of the culture there?
1: Oh, almost certainly. So i mean there there are there are two ways to look at it essentially and, and one is the the people who live up there are largely uh indigenous um you know native American aboriginal you know whatever your your terminology is for those cultures and so they seem to have it in their culture, and they have stories that go back many many generations, perhaps like dozens if not hundreds of generations about um similar beings that go by different names in different communities. But um, they tend to, they tend to, you know, their physical and behavioral attributes tend to more or less uh, overlap with Sasquatch and Bigfoot. And so, um, so in one sense, yes, cultural in, in, in the, in the, I would say, um, ethnic kind of um, historical kind of sense in terms of, of who these people are, but also in the culture from, more recent anecdotal, uh, less lore-related stuff, but more actual, like, what they consider to be things that happen in real life. So um, it's a reality there for them, unlike, you know, a place like Toronto, again, my my hometown, where it's not really part of the culture because we're not, you know, we're not located near any, any kind of wilderness region, right? So um, uh, often practic- practicalities and circumstances will dictate what becomes part of one's culture and what doesn't. It's not just the yeah. actual lore and the belief and, and the religion and the actual like uh, ethnicity part of the culture.
0: The book focuses on Canada's Great Bear Rainforest, and I know you gave us kind of a lay of the land uh, from a geographical sense. Do that. Do that again, so we have a better understanding of what the region is that we're talking about. And then um, the question I have related to it is: if there was no Canadian USA USA border, would that extend down into the uh, Pacific Northwest of the United States? So,
1: so the Great Bear Rainforest is. Part of the general Pacific Northwest region of North America. So if you're starting from Washington State and you're moving northward towards the British-Columbia border, let's say you're in Seattle and you're going north, you cross the border into Vancouver, and you continue going north along the B.C. coast, 400 kilometers, which or 500, so let's say, I don't know, maybe like 300 miles or something, and you go halfway up towards the Alaska Panhandle, you're going to find yourself smack dab in the middle of the Great Bear Rainforest. So it's essentially the central and the north coast of British Columbia. Before that long, kind of thin, almost tail of southeastern Alaska reaches down and connects with the BC border. So it's a huge region, and um, I mean it is immense. It is pristine. Um, it is it is uh, it is a place of of um, incredible natural splendor. It, it may be. It may be one of, you know, the most pristine forest regions in the world, if not for sure on the continent. And so, yeah, it, it, did, it did used to be, I mean, that forest uh, used to be part of a massive coastal temperate rainforest, which ran all the way from Alaska down to Northern California before colonization. And, you know, I, all of the, the logging and the road building and all the development that ended up fragmenting, fragmenting that region.
0: Uh, this is maybe a bit of a naive question, and I think I know the answer, but i want to hear your answer uh, sure. we, we know what a uh, tropical rainforest is uh what's yes. what's a temperate rainforest
1: mm. well um it it like a tropical rainforest it's a it's a um, rainforest that exists in the northern well, you get them both in the in the upper latitudes of the northern hemisphere and the lower latitudes. Of the southern hemisphere, so you've got you get temperate rainforest in New Zealand, for instance, um, or in Chile, for instance. But um, it is a place that gets a lot of rain, and uh, there is um, just an incredible abundance of trees and foliage, essentially. And so, um, the difference—I mean, I would say the difference between a place like the Amazon, and uh, which is tropical or, 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 or a tropical rainforest in Borneo, for instance. With a place like the Great Bear, is that um, there is, and people don't know this, there is more uh, biomass, which means more organic matter per square inch, and that's trees, that's animal, that's animals, that's anything that's living. There's more in the in, in, in the temperate rainforest, than there is in in uh, tropical. So um, it's just it's just a place with a lot of rain and a lot of a lot of growth, essentially.
0: Are they more coniferous than, um, you know, maybe a deciduous-type forest? Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's
1: definitely definitely coniferous. Um, And because the area gets so much rainfall and because those trees tend to grow large to begin with, I mean, this is an area that that has, you know, uh, western red cedars and sitka spruces and... I mean, trees that can grow, you know, upwards to 200, 300 feet, up to 1,000 years old or more. So, I mean, um, you know, you get the redwoods in, 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 in California, but um, as you continue up the coast, and a lot of it's been logged, mind you, I've seen Oregon and Washington and even in, into most of British Columbia, but you get these incredibly massive, massive, massive trees. And so it, it is kind of like an enchanted forest from a fairy tale. I mean, that's really the only way, I can describe it like a moss everywhere and it's, it's glowing with all these different hues of green. It's, 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 it's truly a spectacular place. And I think that's what, that's what drew me back. I mean, it's, you know, it's what the Sasquatch investigators and researchers t- like to refer to as that term they use is squatchy, right? Like right. this, that kind of almost, you know, um, quasi mystical feel to the place. So, yeah.
0: Well, that was going to be my next question. Do you think that uh, the, the the Sasquatch creature, and we haven't quite determined what that is yet, but that mm. creature is drawn to that particular um, climate, that particular environment, or do you think it's just because it's such a vast wilderness that it's a it's a natural habitat for them?
1: Right. Well, I mean, the you know the the Pacific Northwest temperate rainforests tend to be if they're healthy for us, again, there are, there are places that have been decimated, but um, you know there are places with a lot of food, uh, salmon uh, because of the rainfall. There's a lot of fresh water, and I mean all kinds of animal life, like you know you, ungulates to you know other sea creatures. I mean it's it's a place of of, of enormous plenty in terms of something that needs sustenance, uh, like it like you know a Sasquatch would, would, would need a a place to be able to, to sustain, right? So, I mean, when you talk to the scientists who live up there or, or rather who, you know, more often visit and you, you know, talk to them about, about Bigfoot or Sasquatch and often they dismiss it, but they'll actually always tell you that, you know, if there is such a creature, if there was to be such a creature, I mean, this would be the place um, where you'd find them because also you've got clam beaches and, I mean, there there is a lot of, you know, a lot of food there to sustain, and I think that's part of what makes places like that um, appealing to the creatures.
0: Yeah, so. and, and, and you said, uh, to quote you there, it'd be the place you'd find them, or to quote them, uh, it'd be the place you'd find them, but it's also the place that makes it hard to find them, because it is so wild and so vast, um, yeah. which, which seems to be, uh, you know, the habitat that they prefer. Yeah, where can people get the book?
1: Oh, uh, gotcha, okay. Um, well, basically anywhere that sells books. So uh, in the U.S., um, it's you know online, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any major bookseller online or in person in the store. Uh, and for in Canada, it's still a couple weeks until they're uh, the books released here. But I think it has gone into some stores. So the same thing, any any major bookseller or your local bookstore.
0: So uh, I don't know if we have enough time, three minutes we have uh, before okay. our next break, because we've, we've got a longer segment after the break, but um, you had an experience that you thought might be related to Sasquatch at one point. Is there enough time to tell that right now?
1: For sure. I traveled to um, a town called Nelson in British Columbia. It's in the Kootenay region of BC, so a little bit closer to the Alberta border. I was visiting a friend uh, back in 98. It was the winter um, just a vacation. We we're hanging out, me and me and my buddy, and we just decided one day to go on a hike. And um, we followed a trail which led from the top of his street and basically wrapped around the mountainside. And about an hour into the trail, and we didn't see anybody, and it was snow everywhere. It was still winter. Um, we just started hearing something approaching from higher up in the mountain, almost paralleling us. Um, from behind and then it basically passed us over us parallel to us on the trail. And it was, it sounded bipedal. We didn't see it. Um, and we could hear breathing. It was like crunch, crunch. Like, <gasps> like, and so, oh, wow. um, you know, what, what was really astounding about it was not the fact that it sounded and potentially could have been a bipedal creature, but that the sound was so loud uh, almost like in, you know, a kind of a stereo surround sound kind of way, but we couldn't see anything. And there was no movement of the trees, no branches swaying, no snow, you know, coming off of the branches. And, and so it was kind of, it was, you know, sort of frightening to like hear something that close, but not be able to see it. And, and, you know, as we were just standing there scratching our heads, wondering what the hell had just happened, it started coming back again. Mm. and And then we just, we broke into a sprint and, you know, ran down the trail back to basically back into town. And, and um, yeah, we, just, it, we didn't,
0: we didn't know what happened. It really unnerved you to the point where you felt like you had to run.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I mean, again, like the thing had such a presence. It was again, it wasn't the fact that it was step, 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 step. It, right. and, and and it was, it was the presence that it had. And so um, we, again, we didn't see it, so I can't say for sure, but, but it was it was definitely um intimidating that's the term
0: any odor associated with the with what no you were no, no
1: no nothing like that you no, know nothing, the,
0: the way you described it though um it was you could tell it was close by but you couldn't see it you could hear it faintly you could hear some breathing that is a very very common description of of others that have had uh what they consider to be some type of encounter with a sasquatch
1: yeah i've i've, I've heard that from other people and um again like the, it wasn't just that the that it was nearby it was it was as if the sound was all around us it was almost as if the breathing and the crunching of the steps was again like enveloping us it was almost you know like we had stereo speakers on all sides of us and we could hear it so it was you know it definitely did have a a weird aspect to it and and again you know snow can also play with sound a little bit and sure. and, and but i i don't know i just It was a while while ago, but that's what really brought me back into the subject in adulthood.
0: We're talking tonight with John Zeta. He's a journalist and an author, and his website is johnzeta.com. His book is called In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, In Search of the Sasquatch. Just a quick reminder, we've got some great shows coming up later in the week as well. Tomorrow night, Rick Shapiro will be here. I'm really excited about this program, too, because tomorrow night we'll be talking with Rick, who is a cancer consultant, a researcher, and an educator. And he's written a book called Hope Never Dies, which he relates stories of people who beat the odds and survived cancer. And I know that uh, that disease has touched all of us in some way, whether it's friends or family that we've lost to it. And I think there's some messages of hope, as the title would imply, that'll come from our discussion with Rick Shapiro tomorrow night. Bernie Taylor will be with us Thursday. He's a uh, returning guest. He's been with us a couple of times. Always a great conversation. He's a naturalist and an author, and we'll be talking about the question, Are We Alone in the Cosmos? And he'll attempt to give us some answers by examining nature's timekeeping systems. And then Friday night, of course, will be a best-of show. But again, tonight we're talking about Bigfoot and Sasquatch. Our guest is John Zeta. He's written a book about the topic. And, John, again, thanks for being here. I want to go back to your experience that we were just talking about before the break because you kept referring to us were there people in your group that uh, were native to the area that may have had these experiences before, maybe even a sighting or something uh, more involved than, um, you know, that you hadn't experienced at that point?
1: No, I was just with one other person and he, uh, he was from Toronto. So, um, and he'd moved out to Nelson and and so it was, it was really just the two of us. And um, he was also, I think. I mean, after after the fact, we talked about it. I mean, he was open to it. So, and I was open to it. So, I mean, maybe that lent itself to the experience in so, in some way. But it was essentially just the, just just the two of us.
0: All right. So, as you started to explore this area, you said you went there for more of a travel writing purpose, and you started to get unsolicited stories and accounts mm-hmm. of Sasquatch creatures. Tell us how that started.
1: Right, so I had so, so that trip in that summer involved going to three different communities along that same stretch of coast, and in the first community that I went to, a place by the name of Bella, Bella um, I had I was I was crossing from one island to the main ta- to the main village of Bella, Bella on a sea bus, just kind of like a like a, like a water going taxi, and the driver just started talking about how, you know, a kid's camp uh, a little way down the coast uh, had 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 a visitor or something a, a number of weeks prior. And and so I went and talked to him about it. He told me the story. And then I went and spoke to the people who ran the camp. And then I basically started hearing about all the different encounters that people in the town, not just the camp story, but but just other people came out and volunteered their stories to me and I just was going from person to person um, in Bella Bella and hearing that uh, I basically like arrived at a time that were, you know, a summer where they were, they were seeing and hearing and sensing a lot of, you know, their activity. And so when I went to the next place, a place called clem it was kind of the same thing. It was, you know, the creatures were coming down into the village in the middle of the night and banging on houses and, you know people seeing them on the trail going up to the lake above town and I'd even spoken to a couple of construction workers who were there building some new homes and they were from I think you know closer to Vancouver they were they were like white guys and you know they were they didn't know about any of this stuff going on they only really heard it through me and they said well you know funny you're mentioning this but you know there's this thing up on the mountain that's like hollering every night that we'd never you know we've never heard anything any other animal like this, and and it just went on and on. And when, when I went to Coola, which is another town, the same thing. So, it, yeah, it was again like this kind of strange serendipity, almost, and 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 you know, kind of, kind of, almost a uh, a microcosm or maybe even a macrocosm of, of what I'd experienced my entire life up until up until that point. Just stories, in a way, kind of seeking me out, and 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 that's kind of what that's what caused me to go back.
0: As these folks were sharing these stories with you, did you sense any fear in, in their voices or were they just uh, completely acceptive of what was going on?
1: No, the conversations were really casual. Um, and, you know, I think, I think the, 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 the reality series finding Bigfoot had already been on, you know, for a few seasons. And I think that had, that had allowed them to speak freely because I think it gave them license that it's no longer a taboo thing. So it, in one sense, it was easygoing. But there were, there were a couple of accounts, um, anecdotes, that, you know, in retrospect, meaning when they reflected back on what had happened to them, involved a lot of fear. And in one case, I think, you know, a couple of the people I'd spoken to were hospitalized for anxiety. I think one guy uh-huh. had, had gotten so afraid that his, his arm had, had gone dead, and then, uh, and then another guy I think required some some kind of psychiatric um, assistance out of the fear that it had caused. Because for some, it's it's not a it's not a positive experience, and there's a lot of concern uh, among some of the people up there that seeing a Sasquatch could result in illness or death or a curse or some kind of you know um, um, negative life event befalling you as a result of having locked eyes with one.
0: Does that come from a Native American view of the creature, or does it originate somewhere else?
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. I mean, I think I I don't know what the origin of that is exactly. It's really hard to say. I mean, I know that that in their traditions and in their lore, um, going far back, the animal, the, the, the creatures, the beings, let's call them, um, you know, are, are not to be trifled with. They're not to, they're, 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 they're meant to be taken very seriously. They, in a lot of cases of supernatural abilities and, um, they're not always evil or necessarily intent on doing harm, but I think they have the power to. So I suspect that people there, some people there, not everyone, um, assume that they will automatically do them harm and i guess seeing one is a frightening experience so you know the fear of seeing one combined with all of these ideas about what they could possibly do to you would would probably in a lot of cases scare the hell out of you right so i i think um i think that's what you're dealing with in a lot of cases there
0: during the course of these discussions, you mentioned a couple people in the hospital for anxiety. But did you get any reports of any physical contact between any of these creatures and people?
1: No, I mean the only, the only, the only stories that I had heard about, let's say hostility, uh, was was you know bluff charges and rock throwing, and and often I, it sounded like it came to that point when uh, territory uh, of the creatures was infringed upon or, again, resources like clam beds. Uh, There's, a you know, in in the Native American and the indigenous traditions um, uh, or or lifestyle or or life up there, they, you know, they go digging for clams because that's part of their food resources there. So um, often that happens at night when the tide is low in the middle of the night and, of course, the the you know sasquatches are reported to be nocturnal. So um, what happens is sometimes people say that they they went to go clam dig in this remote beach on some remote island, two hours from town, and um, they thought you know there's a sasquatch nearby and it got really angry and it would holler or throw rocks or try to do something else to drive them away essentially. And so th- those tend to be the kinds of encounters when like the when the line is crossed so to speak. But um, nothing involving in you know no you know no physical attacks of any kind at least at least not body to body
0: uh we mentioned native americans um but how does the native american community in that region uh view or consider bigfoot what are their beliefs on the topic
1: right so um it, it it's it's kind of complicated it, it's a lot like us in a way so not it, Just because they're indigenous doesn't mean that they automatically believe in Bigfoot or Sasquatch. In fact, there are a lot of people in those communities who uh, do not because they haven't seen one or come across one or had any experience with one. And in fact, they will attribute their disbelief to the fact that their you know, parents told them scare stories as children to keep them in line behaviorally. But, you know, through the use of Sasquatch, like almost like boogeyman stories in a way. And so I think when they grow up, they're like, oh, that was just a scare story as a kid. And so I don't believe in them. So you have those people. And then, and then those who do believe kind of fall into different groups. You have those who consider it a flesh and blood animal and that it's just another animal of the forest. You've got others who see it as more of a supernatural being that may have some physical properties, but... Ultimately, you know, um, is parent, you know, is, is kind of more of the paranormal view, kind of the disappearing into other dimensions, or perhaps right. even sh- shape shifting into eagles or other creatures. And then you've got other people who, who are unsure, and they'll say, "Well, I, you know, we only kind of really, you know, believe in them from a kind of uh, traditional tales, folklore perspective, or maybe even historical in the sense of." There are stories going back you know dozens, if not hundreds of generations of of there being even a tribe of them that were like oh they're almost like humans and and but maybe they're not around anymore, and so it really really does vary, but I would say more I would say on the whole there is there tends to be more of a belief in those communities about the creatures than in say you know your your run of the mill town or city which is which is you know not native American let's say but but it is—it is complicated. It's not really one. It's not one thing. Just because they are, uh, they do—you know—sometimes lean towards that.
0: Chat room on the YouTube channel is uh, in full blossom. They're having a great time. If you haven't found the YouTube channel yet and uh, you're looking for a way to stream the program because there's not a radio station in your market carrying it yet, go to YouTube.com slash C slash JV Johnson or just search JV Johnson and you'll find it. It's uh, got a great way to stream the show live. Plus, there's an archive of programs there, about 300. And you can also join the chat room, which is just a lot of fun. Our guest tonight, John Zeta, we're talking about Bigfoot and Sasquatch. His new book is called In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, In Search of the Sasquatch. John, did you say the book is about to be released here or was already released? here? I know it's we're right on the cusp.
1: Oh, no, no. It, uh, it published July 2nd. Okay. So it's, it's, it's out in the U.S. completely so and,
0: and to be found everywhere. So it's not, it's not out yet in Canada then is what you said.
1: Yeah, it's it started to trickle into some bookstores, but it will not be everywhere for another couple of weeks. But uh, but I I've seen it I've seen it in some places in Toronto. So it's I guess it's halfway out in, in, in Canada now.
0: <laughs> the book the <laughs> book focuses on your work and your research in the Great Bear Rainforest in the uh, you know British Columbia Northwest. Uh, Part of the continent here, Um, but did you get an opportunity to compare that area, or maybe uh, just ask some questions about some of the other Bigfoot hotspots around the the uh, North American continent?
1: I didn't really include um, any of you know any reports or any other activity in other parts of the country, Um, but because I was working on the book for a number of years, and because I was meeting a lot of different people, I I have a whole chapter uh, devoted to, you know, the late Dr. John Bindernagle, who is, uh, you know, a, a really well-known, you know, wildlife biologist and Sasquatch researcher. So I, I became privy to a lot of his research. And he's from Ontario originally, from a place called Guelph, just not far from Toronto. And so he did, he, you know, in, in the latter part of his career, he did a lot of you know, Eastern research, as he called it. So he did a lot of research in Ontario and in Ohio and Pennsylvania, and um, you know, even you know other provinces in Canada like Manitoba. And and so, um, yeah. I mean, I, I I think I you know there is you know with with the I guess um, coming of the internet and Google and people being in touch with each other and, and websites and blogs and uh, it's become easy to 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 find where the clusters of reports are and and I. And Ontario is like a big one. If you go north of the Trans-Canada Highway, you know, you know, a number of hours north of Toronto, you'll get into some, you know, boreal forest up there and, again, small communities remote and, and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of stories and lore and incidents and, you know, big parks and campsites and hikers and this, a lot like B.C. So across a, across a wide swath of Canada along the same parallels, you get you get a lot of the same sort of reports
0: we've got just about a minute before we have to take our next break you've mm-hmm. talked to a lot of people you got a lot of stories anybody able to uh, show you any uh, f- photographs that were convincing
1: i saw i saw photos of tracks there were, i didn't come across any pictures of the creatures themselves but a lot of people whipped out their cell phones and you know started scrolling through their pictures and were like hey you know i found this here and and you know um, so, yeah, like a lot, of, a lot of prints in the mud, and they did look a lot like, you know, your typical large, wide, you know, Sasquatch track and everything. So that was the closest in terms of photographic evidence that anyone uh, had to show.
0: I know that uh, on your website, there's a picture there of some uh, foot castings or, or impression uh, castings. Uh, were, were, those, were you involved in collecting those, or was someone just sharing a collection with you?
1: Right. Those were taken in a place called Harrison Hot Springs near Vancouver where the the name Sasquatch um, originated. And those were local researchers who uh, lived near there. And it was not part of the same area that I uh, went to for the book, but, um, but um, it related nonetheless. So Good. it was kind of additional research that I did down there.
0: John, you did a lot of research in the Great Bear Rainforest. You uh, got a lot of great Sasquatch stories and Information about uh, Bigfoot. Did you come across anything else? Any other stories uh, that would be considered mysterious or other phenomenon while you're up there?
1: Yeah, there were um, there was a lot of ghost stories and and you know I guess like phantom type activity and in one of the communities that I was in there uh, there was you know the locals there a place called Weekano, the the locals there were really afraid of this one particular valley uh that was on the north end of of a local lake there and at first it you know it seemed as though or i assumed that it was sasquatch related and i think they even some of them even hinted as much but um and there were all these stories there about these you know logging companies that had been in there in the 50s and in the 60s and their machinery would go haywire would break down and there'd be lots of you know um, accidents and incidents, and almost as if like the logging operations were, were were cursed or haunted. And often these companies would flee, you know, in succession, one after the other, the valley, and and, and the, the valley never got logged essentially. And so, and they refer to it as the Hoodoo Valley. It was kind of the the colloquial kind of haunted name. And 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 you know, I mean, not to give away what happens in, in the story, but you know, I kind of go part of my my search in this particular you know, neck of the woods involved trying to figure out what the, what the deal is with this Hoodoo Valley place. And it turned out that um, there was a kind of a supernatural uh, cause of it being a place of such you know, danger and trouble and uh, tied to stories of the past. I don't want to give it away in the book, but, but um, that was a really, really big kind of a ghost story type of side issue that ran parallel with the Sasquatch stuff going on there.
0: The book um, obviously focuses on this this Sasquatch uh, subject, but you also uh, explore and examine some environmental issues. There's a lot of layers to this. Tell us a little bit more about the the other things that you include in the book.
1: Yeah, um, because it is a place of such you know profound natural splendor, because it is a pristine region, and because Canada and especially British Columbia are you know historically you know resource. Uh, country and province, um, you know, and logging being such a huge thing out there, there's a lot of conflict over the environment, and again, like uh, logging practices and um, uh, issues like you know trophy hunting of grizzly bears, and and so um, one of the really wonderful things about you know uh, writing a book about a place like this is that I I not only you know can sink my teeth into Things like Sasquatch stories and, and and all that kind of, but I, I could also weave into it, um, you know, really really interesting environmental issues. And so um, there there was the logging, there was the logging stuff. There was the again the the a, a big controversy right at the time that I was there uh, about you know trying to ban the trophy hunting of grizzly bears, and and which is which has now come to pass since the book has been published and. Also, like pipeline, like a lot of pipeline policies, because the place is on the coast right. and because, um, you know, super tankers can basically roll up to some of the larger port towns. Um, you know, the oil, the, you know, the big oil companies were looking to build and they still are, actually. But but there were a couple of specific pipelines that were trying to get built in this area that the locals were opposing. So you have all of this tension and conflict simmering and brewing uh right at the time where my trip was taking place and that is woven into the story
0: as um we encroach on these types of habitats what do you think is happening with the sasquatch creatures Are, will they will they become um at some point unable to hide i'll have to use that word i'm not sure if that's the right word but they certainly are elusive at this point or uh will they will they find new places to be able to uh be as difficult to find as they are now
1: well i mean if if we could look at you know northern california oregon and washington state as an example these places have been you know logged more thoroughly and much earlier and you're still having a lot of reports from these places so i mean there are these sasquatch creatures and i mean i haven't seen them but let's say like let's assume that they that that that, you know they do exist i'm i'm sure i mean i'm sure that they're still able there's still enough land and there's still enough you know even disturbed habitat it seems like as though they can still survive in it and so I think their natural inclination would be to go further and deeper into more and more remote, more uh, pristine areas. And then, uh, I guess, if those then become encroached upon, they just, I guess, move from patch to patch from wherever the food sources are. So, I mean, ultimately, if you do log enough and if you do clear enough land and if you do destroy enough of the environment so that it's no longer a healthy environment... Um, all of the creatures will be affected, and some will invariably die off and vanish like the grizzly bear has in a lot of the lower 48. You
0: mentioned, and this is something we talk about frequently when we do discuss a Bigfoot or Sasquatch on the program, but you mentioned these what might be considered alternate theories that Bigfoot might not be a flesh-and-blood creature. It might be an Mm -hmm. interdimensional creature. Some people say there might be an alien connection. Uh, from the reports and the stories that were shared with you, uh, were there any mentions of alien uh, encounters that would correlate or correspond with some of these Bigfoot or Sasquatch stories or any other uh, paranormal phenomena related to those sightings that might give you an indication of which way to lean on the answer to that question?
1: Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I, I was asked that question by somebody else recently and um, in, you know, on the BC coast like a lot of the pacific northwest you are starting to hear now a lot about you know the lights and the orbs and all like there's a lot of there's a lot of other mysterious activity that is that is correlating with with sasquatch but but in the great bear i yeah i didn't i didn't really i didn't hear any story at all that involved anything else happening beyond the actual seemingly physical encounter itself. And I mean, maybe one or two people in passing had told me that, you know, they were open to the idea of it being, you know, maybe UFO related, Um, certainly more paranormal takes on the subject, just as a kind of a shape shifting or as an interdimensional being. But no, there, there, there was nothing like you hear nowadays a lot that's become kind of trendy almost like lights in the sky or, or right. orbs or mind speak or any of that stuff. It just, it just tended to be more, a lot more of the, the, of the traditional, you know, conventional, older type stories of Sasquatch that you find in the John Green books. Like you, you, and, and maybe that might be kind of a cult, that may be indicative of the, of the culture uh, influencing you know the experiences or, or the reports that maybe those communities are not so influenced by the kind of UFO type stuff i I don't know, but it definitely there 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 was a dearth of that kind of commentary in in the reporting that i that I was doing
0: and this may be connected to what you just said, but um you also talk about in the book uh the topics of psychology and perception and how that may be influencing this phenomenon. Tell us more about that
1: yeah I mean, so you know going back again to the whole idea of starting the journey over from the beginning and trying to you know really figure out what exactly is going on I, I I thought well you know you can't really you can't really explore a topic like this you know without really considering the you know the human mind and perception and cognition and even like you know the nature of reality, so I did like loads and loads of reading about you know um how we see the things we see and, and uh, books about belief and how our beliefs are formed. And so I kind of, I, I I really wove a lot of that into the, into the narrative, partly as a, as a way to not just look at and explain the ideas and, and the notions of people who are pro Sasquatch, but also like to look at people who are debunkers and who are, excessively skeptic or, you know, to look at science, for instance, a you know, closed-minded scientist, it was just, a, you know, a way to, to bring in the role of the observer uh, in terms of what is observed, basically. So, and, and again, I wanted to kind of really layer the book and weave it in with the stories, weave it in with the environmental. And I thought this, I thought at the very least, um, you know, if, if looking at that subject would not crack you know, bring the answer outright. At the very least, the reader is going to get a, a you know a, a, a greater awareness of how their mind works, and I thought it would be a really kind of a win-win situation. And so, um, yeah, and you don't get you don't get that you don't get that a lot in in, in in Sasquatch books, and even among even among the skeptical works, which are which are far fewer than the than the pro Sasquatch books out there, they don't really unfold that kind of psychology. And so, I thought it would be kind of doing you know. Doing a service to, to, to provide that.
0: You obviously have been in, involved in media for for quite a long time. What do your colleagues think of this work? Um, you know, some people look at it and say, "Oh, that's you know, that's for tabloids." Uh, what do the people you work with think?
1: I know, I, you know, they, they've been largely okay with it. I mean, I, I think I think they derive more amusement out of my interest than anything. But in in some ways, I I think. I've gotten mostly positive feedback from those who I work with just from the sense that, oh, you know, that's a really fun subject. Oh, that's a really cool subject. And so I think they, and because they know that I'm a little more, um, I guess, balanced with it. And I'm looking at it from many dimensions. They don't really kind of, you know, consider me somehow unhinged, but I would say journalistic, uh, you know, looking at the industry as a whole at the news industry, I mean, they tend to, they tend to kind of poo poo the subject, I think more or less. And, 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 you know, I was even assigned a Sasquatch story once in the newsroom um, and it was like back in 2014. I think there were these guys in the Swamish Valley They'd climbed the mountain and they'd seen, you know, uh, a, a humanoid figure like walking through the snow in this valley it was moving really quickly and, and so I got assigned the story, and my colleagues were like, you know, the producer was like, you know, by the way, like, make sure that you, you know, you kind of, like, write it in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way. So there is a, there is a kind of sense that, that, you know, the subject is, you know, kind of not really serious. And you, you mean you even got that with, with that recent story about um, Peter Byrne and, you know, the FBI and his correspondences. Like, at the end of a lot of the articles, they talked a lot about how Peter Byrne was, had been charged with some offense. So they're, they're always kind of looking for a way to undermine the topic or to make fun of it. Or, you know, um, you know, somehow kind of like poke holes in it, I guess, because I mean, these are mostly city people and who don't really by and large, you know, like, I mean, unless they're in Seattle or they're in Vancouver, like they don't, you know, they don't really kind of know about the stories themselves. Right. So it's, it's, in a way you can't really blame them too much, right?
0: you uh went into this project leaning toward believing uh, you had a real mm-hmm. curiosity by the end of it, you wrote the book uh how did you leave the project? Do you have uh, more questions than answers or are you in one camp or the other or are you still mixed
1: I'm, i mean i'm largely I'm largely mixed i think I think i I found myself veering ex- in sort of extremes going back and forth over the course of not just the trip, but even in the aftermath, I mean, I, I, you know, it was really an oscillation. And, but I mean, I think, I think what I came out of it with in terms of the actual, you know, where the importance lay was, was more about, you know, why we're interested in the Sasquatch and what draws us to the creature and what is the significance of the Sasquatch as a, as a cultural symbol. And I mean, that's where I went, to, in the book towards the end. And, and I mean, I would love for the creature to exist. And, and I do kind of lean toward, I mean, I think there is something going on, but because I haven't seen one, I can't really say for sure. So um, I've, I've, you know, because I am a journalist and I am in a sense, a writer of culture, and I am a, some somewhat of a, of a, you know, cultural critic in a lot of ways in my own thoughts and in my own writing, um, I thought you know the best contribution that I could you know uh, make was to kind of really go deep into our our relationship with with the animal as a culture, and so that's 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 become more my interest.
0: This book is called "In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond: In Search of the Sasquatch." It is available in the United States, becoming available in Canada. Um, any other projects on the horizon? Are you going to follow this up with more Sasquatch work, maybe another paranormal topic or something completely unrelated?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in that early kind of post book phase where I'm, you know, I I obviously still talking about the book and plugging it. And and even, you know, even as I continue to, to talk about it and, and to, you know, you know, like discuss it with the media or with other people, I mean, my, my, my ideas on it are still sort of information, but I, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'll do an actual, another Sasquatch book per se or something like purely, purely, purely about the creature. I think I've, I've somewhat released it, you know, uh, you know, from, you know, from my mind, but I don't know. I mean, I could probably see, you know, doing a, a cameo. Like I would like to do something Pacific Northwest related and maybe another, book about the region and in, in some cap- capacity where I could maybe weave it in. But um, yeah, no plans on doing anything like, you know, Bigfoot per se coming up.
0: John of time. Thank you so much for spending the time with us tonight and uh, good luck with the book.
1: Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Take care.
0: Uh, calling all angels. Did you like the group train? Were you, uh, Orion? Are you a fan uh, of train? No. No. I, I, that, guy's, that guy's got a great voice. Something about his voice I always was impressed with. I think my dad was into them and he kept trying. Oh, to... thanks. There we go. Okay, <laughs> now we know what this is going to be about. He learned one of their songs on. On I bought him a ukulele when he turned like sixty or something, and, uh-huh. I, and or seventy, and he learned one of their songs on. Uh, what was their other song? Drops of Jupiter, I think, was the other. Was their first hit. I don't know what else they had. There I mean, was some. There was one song that kind of had like a Latin beat to it what, that they what was did was Soul too. Sister? Was that? I don't know. No, Was, we're that, on, we're was that their song? I don't know. Soul Sister. I you're, anyway. Now you're way beyond my knowledge of train songs. Anyway, so tomorrow night we're going to be talking about uh, cancer, in fact. I mean, we're going to have Rick Shapiro, who is a cancer consultant, a researcher, and an educator. He's written a book called Hope Never Dies. Oh, Ryan, you were taking a look at that book. Yeah, it's it's very inspiring. It's amazing. And th- there are all sorts of different approaches and angles um, that people have, have taken. Um, it seems, though, the the, the common thread is Do what feels right for you, and don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. Well, I'm anxious to have the conversation. Uh, It's always always inspiring to hear when people beat the odds, particularly with something like cancer that, again, I know everyone has had it touch their life in some fashion. So that'll be tomorrow night's program. Thanks for joining us tonight. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll catch you tomorrow.